Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School lesson for February 19th, 2023. This is the last Sunday of the season of Epiphany, which means it's the transfiguration of our Lord. So today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Kind of a short text for such a momentous event. And it reads like this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. All right, so there's our text, Matthew's version of the Transfiguration. That's Matthew 17. And of course, Matthew 17 comes right after Matthew 16. And the reason I say that is because you always want to check out the context, what's going on around the lesson that you're exploring. And the end of Matthew 16, from verses 13 to 28, that part of that chapter is just full of important stuff leading up to the transfiguration. It's in Matthew 16, starting at verse 13, that Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And, you know, they give the the kind of the, the collection of answers. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter is the one who says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, Jesus blesses Peter and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. All right, so there's this big moment in Matthew 16 where The disciples, well, Peter, on behalf of the disciples, correctly identifies who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, the long-expected Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ. And he's not just a human Messiah who's appointed by God. He is actually, truly, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, by blessing Peter, affirms that all of this is true. Then he tells them to say none of this to anyone. 
And then starting at verse 21 in, in Matthew 16, Jesus tells them the plan for the Christ, the Son of the living God. There we read, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus tells them the plan of the gospel, his death for our sins and his resurrection to give us life. And of course, you know what happens next. Peter takes him aside and rebukes him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns and, and calls Peter Satan, tells him he's a hindrance, and says, You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus tells his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So we have this revelation from Jesus that while he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he's going to save not by knocking heads of his enemies together and, and, and shedding the blood of others and conquering kingdoms. He's going to save by suffering and dying and rising again. And then he tells his disciples that they also will bear crosses and possibly lose their lives by following him. And so there's some cognitive dissonance for the disciples here. For Peter and I have no doubt the rest. Why would the glorious Son of God, the Christ, be going to a cross and die one of the worst deaths imaginable, one of the most shameful deaths imaginable? Now, while they're chewing on that, the last two verses of Matthew 16 end with Jesus saying, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, that sounds like Jesus is going to return in glory with his angels before some of them die, so that the last day is almost already there. But actually, Jesus is speaking of two different things. As he said, he will rise from the dead. In verse 27 of Matthew 16, he says that he will come with his angels in glory, and then he will, he will judge the world and repay each person according to his deeds, his righteousness or lack thereof. But in verse 28, he's talking about something different when he says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. With those words, he's foreshadowing, almost certainly he's foreshadowing the next chapter, the transfiguration. So he's about to be transfigured, which on the one hand will... I suppose, kind of reassure the disciples that he is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God, because God the Father is about to say so. On the other hand, it will once again demonstrate the scandal of the cross. Why is the one who's, who's, who's shining light from within, who is God's Son, as the Father declares from a cloud above, why is he headed for crucifixion and death at the hands of sinners? 
At any rate, Jesus is about to show some of his divinity, some of his glory on the cross for some of them, namely Peter, James, and John. So, Matthew 17 begins, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, some Gospels, especially the Gospel of John comes to mind, are big on symbolic numbers. Matthew, not so much. So when it says here, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, um, probably just means this happened six days after the end of Matthew chapter 16. He takes these three, Peter, James, and John, so some of those among, from among his disciples, and he takes them high up on a mountain by themselves. And that might have, you know, your antenna twitching a little bit because in the Old Testament, the, a mountaintop, a high mountain, is where God tends to appear to his people or to some of his people. So, for instance, in Exodus, uh, from chapter 20 on for a while, he is present on top of Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb. And that's where he summons Moses to the top to give him the Ten Commandments. And also in 1 Kings 19, God is with Elijah on the same mountain, Mount Horeb. And look who shows up on this high mountain, Moses and Elijah. We read in verse 2, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So maybe, maybe, you know, special effects and and sci-fi movies kind of help us imagine this better these days, but this isn't that light is shining from the outside onto him. He is emanating this light from within. And it's not so much that he has to summon this as much as this is his glory that's always there, kind of bursting to get out, except that he's concealed it in his human nature and his human flesh to go about humbly as our Savior. But as he demonstrates, uh, as he shines this light, he demonstrates to his disciple, to the disciples that he is in fact divine. He is in fact the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he's not alone. We read, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So Moses and Elijah, they have a a few things in common. They're both great prophets of the Old Testament. Um, They both kind of have mysterious ends to their lives. Moses dies, and it is God who buries him. So so, um, no one knows where he is buried. His body is never found by man. Elijah doesn't die. He's taken up to heaven in a whirlwind without dying. So, so they have in common kind of this, this mysterious end of life, one in death and, and one by not dying. We could perhaps, and many have suggested, that, um, that they represent the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets together, that's a code phrase for the Old Testament. And to Moses was given the law. Moses wrote the Torah, the five books of law at the start of the Bible. Elijah was certainly a mighty prophet. The odd thing, though, in this is that Elijah doesn't write down any prophecies. There is no book of Elijah. So if 
Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophecy, Old Testament scriptures. It's a little bit strange that Elijah didn't write any of the scriptures. Probably more important for our text are a couple points. One is that both Moses and Elijah went up on the mountain to speak to God. In both their cases, it was, it was Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. When Moses and, and, and God were together on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24 and Exodus 34, um, God spoke really apparently quite audibly. You know, before he speaks to Moses, he speaks to all of Israel in Exodus 20, and they can hear him. So, so God is, is, is making his, his glory and his, 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 uh, his power known even with his voice. When Elijah is on Mount Horeb with God, God speaks to him in a, a whisper, a still small voice. But perhaps drilling down on, on the importance of Moses and Elijah meeting with God on a mountaintop. Now they're meeting with God in the flesh on a mountaintop. And they kind of represent two phases of God's plan for salvation. Moses, as the writer of the first five books of the Bible, the human writer, author, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, Moses was the first to declare that the Savior was coming. In Genesis 3, 15, and other verses of the first five books of the Bible. And Moses was also the one who recorded how God created the heavens and the earth. So, as Moses stands with Jesus, he, he represents that God's plan of salvation has been promised from the beginning, and that's been in effect throughout the Old Testament from the beginning, that God foreknew our need even before the foundations of the earth. So Moses represents that God's plan of salvation has been promised from the beginning and has been at work from the beginning. Elijah, although he's an Old Testament prophet, remember that the end of Malachi in chapters 3 and 4, Elijah gets mentioned as, as coming again before the Messiah and as being the one who prepares the way of the Lord. And of course, that's fulfilled by John the Baptist. Jesus himself says that John the Baptist is the new Elijah. But because of that, while Moses represents that God's plan of salvation has been in effect from the beginning, Elijah's presence there indicates that, that the time is now that God's plan of salvation is in earnest. That now that the Christ, the Son of the living God, is on earth, this plan of salvation is about to come to its climax. It's about to be one. And so, um, in the Old Testament, of course, Moses was a type of Jesus. Elijah prefigured John the Baptist. Both Jesus and John the Baptist are big in the Gospels. And now Moses and Elijah are there to say, the time has come, the king is here, salvation is about to be accomplished. So that's a big deal. And Moses and Elijah are there. They're talking with Jesus. We know from Luke chapter 9 that they're talking with Jesus about his departure. In Greek, his exodus. In other words, we're talking about how Jesus will 
depart from this world, which means you're talking about his death and his resurrection and his ascension. So it's, it's remarkable that Moses and Elijah um, are, are there. They are alive because God is, is the God of the living. And, and, and also they're deferring to Jesus. Moses and Elijah were great men, mighty men uh, among God's people. And yet here they are deferring to Jesus. But Peter doesn't quite catch that part. And so we read in verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. All right, so, so Peter um, is certainly right. It's good to be there and see this. But by offering three tents, He's saying that uh, he's lumping in Jesus with Moses and Elijah as, as three great men, none of them really preeminent. And you've got to admit, it's hard to think of anyone as great as Moses until you really know who Jesus is. So he offers to make three tents, one for each of these great men. And, and by the way, the word tent there in Greek is also the same word that's used in Greek for the word tabernacle. So he's offered to make three tabernacles for these mighty men. And we read in verse 5, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So before you had a tall mountain, and Moses and Elijah, which are all kind of Old Testament themes of God's presence and care for his people. And now a bright cloud overshadows them. And how did the Lord arrive in Exodus um, on Mount Sinai? And that pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So this is another way that Matthew is saying... Um, the, the God who was with the people, promising his plan of salvation in Genesis and Exodus and beyond. This is the same God who is here on this mountaintop. And a voice from the cloud, God the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now perhaps you want to put the emphasis on the verb, listen to him. Because after all, Jesus is the word made flesh. The word of the Lord remains forever. And remember, Jesus has just been telling his disciples that things are going to look really ugly. He's going to appear to be a dead man on a cross because he is a dead man on the cross. So no matter what they see, they should go with what they hear. They should listen to him, and they should know that he already said he's going to suffer and die, and then he will rise again, and he will return in glory. So when God the Father says, listen to him, listen to him, because the word he speaks is the saving word of God. On the other hand, and, and, and perhaps even more likely in this text, is listen to him, don't lump him in with Moses and Elijah, because as great as they were, they were sinners in need of redemption. Above Moses and Elijah, listen to Jesus. He is the Word. He fulfills the Word. He accomplishes a plan of salvation. And even while the disciples object 
to the idea of Jesus going to the cross, object to his words, he's still going there to die for their sins and the sins of the world. I was reading one commentary about this text, and, and, and remember in the Old Testament, in the wilderness, um, the, uh, the tabernacle was the tent where God lived among his people. It had the holy place and the most holy place. Whenever they set up the tabernacle, this, the cloud would descend into the most holy place, and God was there with his people. So this one commentary I, uh, I read said so that the effect of God's words are this. Peter says, I'll make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And in saying, this is my beloved son, God is saying, you want a tabernacle? I'll show you a tabernacle. This is my beloved son. This is God in the temple of human flesh, in the tabernacle of the human flesh. Because remember, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt or tented, tabernacled among us. So when, when God says, this is my beloved son, he's saying to Peter, you want three tents? My son is the tent, the tabernacle, because he is my beloved son in the flesh. We read in, 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 um, in verse 6, when the disciples heard this, when they heard God speak, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So the disciples encounter God, the Father speaking to them. And if they encounter God while they're rejecting the idea of Jesus dying for their sins, then the presence of God and the voice of God are terrifying things. Look, God has declared in Exodus 33 that no one can look upon the face of God and live because of their sin. And because then the disciples are, are still struggling with the idea of, of Christ crucified, means they're struggling with how God wins forgiveness for our sins. And if sins aren't forgiven, it's terrifying to be that close to God. Why are they no longer afraid? Because when um, they have fallen down on their faces, Jesus alone comes and touches them. The Savior is present with them to say, rise and have no fear. And because he continues on his way to the cross and dies for them, when they see God and hear God in his glory in heaven, they will not be terrified and neither will you. This ends with Jesus, or with verse 9 saying, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Why keep this a secret? Because before the crowds and everybody else should dwell on Jesus in his divine glory, emanating light from the inside out, First, he must undergo his glory of shedding his blood on the cross, which, again, doesn't look glorious, but it's the glory of God to save sinners. And so Jesus' suffering and death and the shedding of his blood on the cross is glorious because that is the greatest service to sinners of, that, that God could possibly render. 
So that's the transfiguration. Now, there are some similarities here between the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration of Jesus. In both places, God speaks. The first time at his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, as Jesus is baptized, the heavens open, and the Father says from heaven, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Here, it's God the Father in a bright cloud, which is very Old Testament-y. And I, I guess we could say the heavens don't have to open again because they've been open since Jesus was baptized. But God the Father says the exact same words, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then he adds, Listen to him, or listen to him. At his baptism, another similarity, Jesus declares that God's plan of salvation has drawn near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king is there at hand. And now at Jesus' transfiguration, Moses and Elijah indicate the same. They show proper deference to the Son of God, to the king who has come. And as they talk about his departure, his exodus, his cross, they're also declaring that God's plan of salvation has drawn near and is about to be accomplished. There's some differences, too. When Jesus is baptized, he appears so ordinary that nobody knows that he is anything special. When God speaks at Jesus' baptism, there's no indication that anybody else hears except Jesus. And the following day, we know from, from John chapter 1, after Jesus is baptized, nobody knows that he is, in fact, the Messiah until John the Baptist points him out and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus does not look ordinary here, He's shining light from the inside out. He's showing off some of his divine glory. But it's always the same Jesus, fully human, fully divine, on his way to the cross to die for you and me. All right, then we want to take a quick look at Exodus chapter 24, verses 8 through 18. This is soon after Israel has arrived in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. You know, they, they've been rescued from Pharaoh. They've crossed the Red Sea. Manna is falling from the heavens. God is taking care of them. They camp at Mount Sinai, and God gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. At the start of Exodus 24, God commands, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, and Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. So this is one of those, you know, mountaintop experiences where, where God is on top of a mountain in this cloud of glory, and he invites Moses, and Aaron, and Nadab, and Abihu, Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders to come up the mountain, to draw nearer to him than the rest, but to still worship him from afar. Now, as we mentioned before, in Exodus 33, verse 20, God declares that no one can look upon the face of God and live. So, 
what happens so that Moses and the rest can climb the mountain and, and see God, though, from afar. And in the first few verses of Exodus 24, after God commands them to come up the mountain, a couple of things happen. First off, Moses gathers the people together, and he reads to them all the words of the Lord, all the, all the rules, all of God's word that they have so far. And the people declare, all the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses writes down these words, because these are God's people, they have God's word, and, and, and they want to hear it and obey it. Then... Moses supervises young men to make sacrifices, burnt offerings, and peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Burnt offerings for the forgiveness of sins, peace offerings for peace with God. Moses collects the blood from these sacrifices. He puts it in basins, and half of it he throws against the altar, and half of it he throws on the people. And that's where our text picks it up in verse 8 of Exodus 24. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is how covenants were sealed in the Old Testament. When two parties arrived at an agreement, they would slaughter an animal and by the shedding of its blood, the covenant would be sealed. So Moses throws half the blood of the covenant against God's altar down below in the camp in order to say this blood has been shed uh, to, to mark you as a part of this covenant. And then he throws the blood on the people, which sounds terribly gross to us. But as the people leave that day, they can look at their bloodstained garments and say, hey, look, I'm part of the covenant I received the blood of the covenant today, and so God's promises are for me. So Moses proclaims the word. He makes the sacrifice. Um, the blood is shed, and it's only then that we read in verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. I love that verse, by the way, because it's, it's almost like, you know, we look up in the sky and then we, we see the blue sky on a clear day. And here these guys, they climb up the mountain and, 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 and when they get to where God is, he's, he's on this pavement of sapphire. So it's, it's almost like he's, he's standing on top of the sky, like rather than it just being, um, you know, blue atmosphere reflecting the oceans, just air. There's actually a sky floor or a sky ceiling. Um, at any rate, they see God under his, uh, on this pavement of sapphire stone. And then we read in verse 11, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, and they beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. Why were they not harmed? Why did not God destroy them for coming to his presence? Because no one can look on the face of God and live. He did not destroy them because he'd made his covenant with them. His word was declared, blood was shed, 
And because that blood was shed and they were marked by that blood, they could come into his presence because of the blood of the covenants. And what happens while they're up there? They eat and drink. God provides them with a supper. All right, from there we read, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. All right, so this is why this Old Testament reading shows up on the Sunday of Transfiguration. You have Moses on a mountaintop in the presence of God in this glorious cloud. And what is he doing there? He's receiving the word of God. He's listening to God on the mountaintop that he might declare it to others. Why can Moses be in God's presence? Because the blood of the covenant has been shed. So while the people down below are terrified by the sight of God and the sound of God and the appearance of the devouring fire, Moses is safe in God's presence because the blood has been shed. The same Lord who was on Mount Sinai with Moses in that glorious fiery cloud, that same Lord is with Moses on the mountain of transfiguration, humbly in human flesh, on his way to die for sinners, on his way to shed his blood as the blood of the covenant, so that sinners can be forgiven and then can look on the face of God in his glory and live forever. Same God on Sinai and the Mount Transfiguration at work to save his people. One last thing about this uh, Exodus text here from where we Exodus 24. The blood is shed, the word is read, and then the elders eat in the presence of God. Lots of kind of images there of our worship. Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that he might give us the forgiveness of sins. And now as Moses threw the blood on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, at the Lord's Supper, Jesus says to you, Take and drink, this cup is the blood of my, uh, this cup is the new covenant or new testament in my blood. As in Exodus 24, the people heard the word, and because of the, the, the blood of the covenant, they entered into God's presence. Then the elders ate in the presence of God. 
Because the blood of Jesus has been shed, you and I are gathered into worship at the congregation together with the people of God. We hear God's word. We receive the blood of the covenant. In fact, God provides a meal, a supper for us, his own son's body and blood. What a couple of great texts. Um, A blessed transfiguration to you. God bless your further meditations on these readings, and God give you every blessing if you're teaching this to others. Until we meet again in the season of Lent, the peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen.